Welcome to the Inspire Podcast. In this episode, we talk to archaeologists Nancy Grace and Peter Moore about the remarkable discovery of a glass fish at Chedworth Roman Villa. Louise Prideaux explores the unique 16-sided scaffolding at Alarond in Devon. We investigate the unspoilt Orswell Woods on Dartmoor with Alex Rader. And volunteer ranger Heidi Reynolds continues her tour of the lizard. Salve et grata ad inspirus podcastus. I am Benedictus Maximus Visardus, editor of the Inspire magazine, host of a mediocre podcast, and I will have my vengeance with some very poor jokes. As you can tell, this edition has a Roman flavour as we hear more about the remarkable discovery of part of a glass fish at Chedworth, so rare that it took several years to identify it. We'll be speaking to trust archaeologist Nancy Grace and Peter Moore, who actually dug up the object about Chedworth and the new discovery. So keep your hours open for that later. But before that, we're exploring Orswell Wood on Dartmoor, a vital woodland habitat which we are now protecting in partnership with the Woodland Trust. We'll be looking at why it's such an important place to look after and our plans for the future. We will also drop in at Alarond in Devon, where a roof conservation project has required the construction of 16-sided scaffolding kind of like the most complicated game of 3D Tetris ever seen. And volunteer ranger Heidi Reynolds is continuing her journey around the lizard. So whether you're listening to this at work, at your locus, at home in your domus, or out and about in your chariot, take off your caligai, put your feet up, and ask your favourite slave to bring you a glass of wine and some dormice to snack on, because it's on with the show. So, Chedworth, the lizard, and Alarond later, but first... We recently announced that we're working with the Woodland Trust to safeguard Orswell Wood for future generations. It's a 340-acre mix of ancient woodland and heathland in the Dart Valley. We spoke to our natural environment lead Alex Rader, countryside manager Mick Jones and David Rickwood from the Woodland Trust about what makes it so special. My name's Alex Rader and I'm a consultancy manager for the National Trust. And we're standing here in Orswell Wood, Alex. Can you tell us a little bit about why this was an important place that we needed to protect? Dartmoor National Park is a, a really important area for nature, for landscape, for access. And the Dart Valley within it is a, a particularly special part of Dartmoor National Park. And the Trust already own uh, a couple of uh, blocks of woodland within it, Hembury and Holm. Uh, and the Woodland Trust do as well uh, in one or two spots. And uh, when this came on the market, we just felt it was extremely important to secure uh, what is one of the most special and, and biodiverse uh, parts of Southwest England. My name is David Rickwood. I'm the site manager for the Woodland Trust uh, on Dartmoor. Orswell is a, a, a site that has a feeling of a sort of prehistoric wilderness about it, with rocky tours, tumbling screes, uh, a massive glacial torrent river sitting right on the edge of Dartmoor with the high moor above it, the tumbling woodland along the edge of the river. It's an ancient woodland site that's had a degree of conversion to conifer in the 20th century. But it's one of those places that's a refugia 
for some of the key species on Dartmoor that are really seen as under threat in any kind of climate uh, projections. And so this site is really important for a number of key iconic Dartmoor species. And we're looking to restore this site to its more natural beauty. And we want to do that through natural processes. Morning, my name's Mick Jones, Countryside Manager for Dartmoor. I've been involved working with the Woodland Trust now for quite a few years. Uh, we started off working at Fingal Woods, uh, which is the first partnership we uh, embarked on in this part of the country. Worked really well, got a great relationship with uh, Dave Rickwood, who's the manager around here. And then the opportunity came up just recently to acquire these amazing woodlands here. To be quite honest, neither of our charities would have been able to afford the site if we hadn't worked together again. So with the great experience we'd had at Fingal Woods, we um, moved on from that and did it again. And with a bit of luck and a bit of help, we've managed to acquire these, this wonderful place. From both organisations have learned a great deal from each other. Uh, not only on the ground where Dave's experience as a forester uh, has been great for us, uh, we tend to be a bit more generalist conservation-wise, and we've found that for us to achieve what we need to do in the countryside, we really have to work with other people, whether that's other charities, uh, Devon Wildlife Trust, Woodland Trust, RSPB, or with private individuals who might be neighbours or just benefactors. And this is another great example of how that really works well on the ground. And how do you think this fits in with our overall strategy? Well, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it's 10 years since uh, the Lawton Report was published and the Lawton Report was a kind of bedrock for our own uh, strategy that was produced uh, in 2011 uh, and has been modified since when, you know, we decided that one of our big burning platforms in the National Trust was nature. And um, when you look at Lawton and what Lawton said, it was very much about trying to create landscape scale uh, nature conservation and a place like the Dark Valley, which is a, a kind of core area in Lawton terms of, of biodiverse interest, is precisely the place that, that we should be saving, making bigger and connecting. And what's special about this place in terms of its uh, nature and biodiversity? Well, it, it's like a lot of the river valleys uh, coming off, off the sort of south and east and west of, of Dartmoor. It's um, a particular biodiversity hotspot for its western uh, oak woodlands. Uh, very uh, sort of magical special places for lichens and with a unique uh, assemblage of, uh, of birds and butterflies that you don't now get anywhere else really in, in the southwest. And, as I say, these are the kind of core areas that we actually need to save if we're going to stand any chance to rever of reversing the declines uh, in nature that we've seen over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And in terms of the future, at the moment it's not open to the public, is it? But what are our plans in terms of access for people? Well, that's, that's a great thing too, that we can actually uh, create access where, where none really existed before. Um, what we're proposing here is an, a small informal car park, and there are a number of routes that you could uh, take from that car park. Uh, some easy, some very steep, but in particular, we, we think there's scope for a really nice uh, a short circular walk that takes in most of the, the, the sort of aspects of interest around this particular part of the valley. And on a personal note, what's What's your sort of uh, favourite part of Oswell? 
I, I really love the Dark Valley. It's, it's one of the most special areas in the southwest. I enjoy swimming in the rivers. I enjoy bird watching in its woods. And um, I, I know that for a nature lover, it's, it's a great place to come. You know, it's, it's got some very, very special butterflies. And that's one of the things that we would like to spread out and bring back to this particular woodland. Not far away at home, we've got, uh, we've got the high brown fertility and we really want to save that species, which is Britain's rarest and, and I think most rapidly declining butterfly. But it's also really special for a number of birds. We've, we've got the, the classic suite of the three uh, Western oak specialist species, pied flycatcher, wood warbler and redstart and a number of birds which are now very very rare in, in the wider landscape and, and lesser spotted woodpecker like spotted flycatcher which you can come and see here uh, still and which ideally we'd like to spread out from this core area into the wider countryside. We were able to secure our part of the purchase of Orswell thanks to generous gifts in wills, while the Woodland Trust were fortunate to have a supportive foundation to take on ownership on their behalf for a limited period. The Woodland Trust now need to raise £1 million to take over ownership, so have launched a fundraising appeal. If you'd like to donate, you can find information at woodlandtrust.org.uk forward slash Orswell. Coming up, Heidi Reynolds continues her tour of the lizard, and we visit Chedworth Roman Villa. But first, some one-of-a-kind 16-sided scaffolding has been created around the roof of Alaronde near Exmouth, so work can begin to make it watertight. Nearly seven weeks in the making, this specialised scaffolding will mean that repair work can start to help keep the fragile shell gallery safe and dry. Louise Prido went down to find out more. So I'm with James Wallace, who is the Senior Building Surveyor at Alaronde. So I've been uh, employed in the National Trust for about nine years and for the last five years I've been looking after Adirond as a building sphere there which has sort of led me to now sort of doing the, the roof project that we're doing now. So James, how long did the roof project take to get in place from the initial planning stage to starting the work? A couple of years ago, back in 2017, we sort of started to notice um, that there was a, an active leak in the ceiling of the shell gallery and what we did first was um, we put some scaffold up um, the year before, uh, which was just really to have a look and understand what the problem was. And there we identified that actually the roof was in need of replacement. And we wanted to make sure that the roof was properly watertight for the foreseeable future, as, as confident as we could be. So when we do the later shell gallery project, we knew it was protected. The first element of the work we identified, yeah, that, that there was an issue with the lead work. And then uh, we had to do a lot of planning, getting consents to actually do to designing the, the scaffold as you see it today, which took a good year to get up and going really. So 2017 um, really is when you identified the leak, but do you think um, it, it's been in need of repair from before then? It, was that the first time that it, in however many hundred years that it's needed repairing? or No, uh, so Alaron's a very interesting building in terms of it has evolved uh, I mean, the roof used to be thatched uh, uh, in, in the past. And then, yeah, it's been changed and adapted and there's been different roofs put on. So the last one was done in sort of late 1990s, early 2000s, we think. But yeah, there was the issues within the lead work meant that we needed to do replacement. Actually, the amount of work we needed to do actually was worth replacing the roof. 
So are you replacing the lead or are you doing a completely new roof? So we are doing a completely new roof. We have got new Delible slate from Cornwall, which we're using, and new lead work, um, new timber battens and, and a, a breathable felt as well to make the new roof. So it's as top quality as you can get. And yeah, we're, we're using the sort of best contractors we can for this work. So what stage are we at at the moment in the roof project? And can you give us some idea of the time scale? The scaffold went up in early July, taking approximately six weeks to erect. We then have been taking off the existing slates on it and repairing basically the roof structure and recording the roof structure. And now we're at the stage, so I've actually just been on the roof this morning and they've finished basically felting and battening ready to start putting the new slates onto the roof. Um, so we're also looking at replacing the gantry, which is the sort of walkway which goes around the shell gallery, which we're actually going to use the Killerton uh, direct labour so that the um, staff employed directly um, to replace the oak uh, boards um, on this gantry, which currently are, are in need of replacement and replacing the fixings. And then we're also going to be um, doing some work to the windows of the shower gallery. And we're actually going to be putting in this uh, uh, quite an innovative smart tint film, which is coming from America and has only been used once before in Hampton Court, as far as we know it, uh, in such use. Um, and this controls the light levels in the shower gallery so we can prevent UV damage in the shower gallery. So have you made any discoveries through this roof project that you'd like to talk about? So yeah, no, it's been quite an exciting project. So when we started to inspect behind a lot of the glazing in the shower gallery, we actually discovered that the arch windows, which are behind the sort of diamond windows you can see from outside, we discovered those arch windows, we think probably weren't arch windows originally. They, they look oval windows because you can see that the brickwork and how it looks like it's been cut ties in also with some of the thinking around you know there's various queries we had around around the seating inside the shell gallery so that was quite an interesting you know actually how that how the buildings changed and adapted over time which with alarons always one of the really really exciting things we also did when we did the initial survey work we used um, what we call a point cloud um, which is quite a new technology which sends lots of lasers out to measure and record the the roof basically because we had no access in there before um, in the roof void between the ceiling and the underside of the actual, actual roof and we also recorded what was in the shower gallery um, so we can get the makeup of the ceiling in total and from that, um, we actually discovered that through the, the accuracy of the uh, point cloud that we could, could discover slight changes in the level of the ceiling, which discovers a decorative pattern or decorative scheme on the ceiling, we think. Uh, and this ties in slightly with what we've done some paint samples on the ceiling as well. And it's, it's indicated perhaps there could be a decorative scheme. Um, so really quite exciting in terms of something we didn't know, um, a, a very plain, plain ceiling at the moment, but actually likely to have a decorative scheme on it. So one of those exciting things we're sort of still trying to understand and look into sort of more details of that, but um, really exciting sort of discovery, really. So can you tell us a little bit about the 16-sided scaffolding? Aleron, given it is 16-sided in itself, um, is a very difficult structure to put a scaffold on. And yeah, it came up with lots of headaches really in terms of how we do that we wanted to really get to the top which yeah given the roof shape 
was really quite hard to achieve. So we had to really think about how we bear that the, the the loading of the scaffold on the structure and actually how we design that that, that scaffold. So quite a lot of work, quite a lot of different designs, quite a lot of of thoughts regarding how we could do that. Yeah, so which enabled us to create the scaffold which we've got out there now. We really needed a covered scaffold because of the fragility of the shell gallery. We couldn't let any water ingress into the shell gallery. So we needed that protective covering over the top to be able to undo the undo the replacement of the roof and make sure it's all watertight again. So um, it'll be good for a good few years into the future. It was, is there a template for this? I mean, it has this kind of thing we've done before. Um, did you take you know ideas from other projects, other buildings, that kind of thing? No, it's not really one. Yeah, we haven't got ones that are that similar. We knew we could load, um, so we've got a really good conservation structure engineer who sort of could guide us in terms of how we could load onto the building. So we're using sort of the existing structure of the building to where, where it's strongest to actually load the scaffold on. And then, yeah, it's down to then the scaffold designers who then come up how they can then, then design that scaffold accordingly. So I'm with Lorna, who works in visitor experience at Aleron. So Lorna, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement um, with, with Aleron and the roof project and, and everything? Really? Yeah, so uh, I said I started over in the shop and I've been brought over to help Emma. Um, I've been helping in all sorts of aspects of it, really. Some of my big roles have been in designing, helping do the scaffolding banners that are on the outside, uh, which are sort of the interpretation, tell the visitors a bit about what's going on. Um, with the project and why we're doing it which is a really important uh, thing for us to make sure we get across and then the same with our canvas prints inside um, sharing that information and, and why we're sort of undertaking this project why it's really interesting why the 16-sided scaffolding is so sort of fun and interesting because it is really different to something you might see uh, anywhere else um, and yeah I'm really getting involved in those aspects of it. So, so how have you managed to weave that into you know the story of the house or the the, the spirit of Avalarot. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, I suppose our our main thing is obviously the reason we're fixing the roof is to protect the the shell gallery which the parliament is made. And if we we hadn't done the roof, then we wouldn't be able to do the conservation work on the gallery, which is such a a big part of the house and a part of the story and a part of the parliament's story so that's really where our kind of spirit of place and that comes in because it's about their creativity and how we protect it um, and how we make sure it's preserved for the future and we can conserve it and if we don't fix the initial issue which is there's water coming through the roof (laughs) we can't protect the gallery so their legacy is therefore going to be lost Um, so that's that's kind of the story we've been telling the visitors big steps we've got to do point part a first which is getting the roof watertight and then we can look at going right what can we do next how can we protect it for another 220 years Mm. and how have visitors responded to all of this positively actually it's been a nice surprise so obviously i think whenever you're doing building work and a lot of national trust members are kind of used to it a lot of our buildings have scaffolding on it's part of part of national trust to fix things but we really weren't weren't sure because I think it can be a bit off-putting for people mm-hmm. they want to come and see something um, but actually been really positive there's the whole aspect of it being 16-sided and being something mm-hmm. just totally different I mean it took it them nearly six weeks seven weeks to put up 
um, and you know two people doing it just watching them do it was amazing and actually you know we've had lots of lovely comments from people who are in the industry who, who've come down and gone oh wow that's different that's really clever you know how have they done that um, because it's not something you're going to see every day you know I don't know if we're the only one in the world but there's probably not that many yeah. <laughs> 16 sided uh, you know buildings and scaffolding so yeah it's actually been really positive and I think generally people understand why we're doing it um, and they appreciate that that is just part of it the, mm. you know to, in order to get that part of it done there has to be scaffolding so yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's been good and how will this whole project um, once it's completed enrich the visitor experience here I think it's like I said it's about knowing that conservation of the gallery will will be done and then hopefully you know in the future we're looking at ways that we can share the work that we're doing up in the gallery um, whether that's with more interactive online or whether that's with videos or whatever it is we don't know exactly yet but it's about being able to say look we've managed to save this amazing unique thing that's there's nothing like it anywhere else um, and just being able to share that as our visitors and saying actually this is this is why we've done it this is this is what we're protecting mm-hmm. and yeah the future is really looking into how else we can share that with people um, and it is a bit unknown at the moment it's all going forward and seeing how what are the ways we can do it mm-hmm. but yeah there's potentially some really exciting things in the future mm-hmm. um, which will be really good so if the parmenters could see what was happening now in 2019 mm-hmm. um, to their precious shell gallery um, and, the, and the conservation work that's going on, what do you think they'd make of it? Yeah, I, I think they'd just be uh, really happy that it's still here and that it's still amazing to people and people are still coming from you know, all over the world. And when people see it for the first time, there's still that shock and that kind of awe about it. Um, and I think that's wonderful that in 2019 that you can see something and still go, wow, actually, that's pretty unique that's pretty crazy what made you what made people what made them do that and you know I think hopefully they'd be really happy that their story is still getting shared mm-hmm. that people still want to come and see what they're doing what what they did um, and then how it how it's progressing and how it's going to look for the future mm-hmm. um, and I think that's just amazing and hopefully yeah in a, another 200 years people will still be coming and saying wow isn't isn't it amazing a 16-sided house who would have thought of that because it is pretty unique I don't think there's very many places like it in the world so it's really lovely for us to be able to have that uh, impact on people and to have that reaction from people as well and I hope that Jane and Mary would feel the same way that actually what they did is still amazing and it's still kind of awe-inspiring to people so hopefully that they'd be really happy with what we're doing that's that's how I think yeah (laughs) Stay tuned for our visit to Chedworth in the company of Nancy Grace and Peter Moore. But before that, in the last episode, volunteer ranger Heidi Reynolds took us on a tour of the Wildlife Watchpoint and Marconi Wireless Station on the Lizard. As she continues her tour, Heidi explores the reasons she moved to Cornwall after tragic news cut short her career in the Metropolitan Police. Hello and thank you for having me back. Um, I'm Heidi Reynolds. For those of you that didn't hear my first podcast, I am a wildlife ranger down on the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, um, the very most southerly point of mainland UK. I'm a volunteer, obviously, and I absolutely love my role. I've also got involved in an awful lot of other things um, and the National Trust have allowed me to do that. The other thing I wanted to talk about was a little bit about myself, which I have in my um, recent column. 
I was diagnosed with Parkinson's when I was 37. I'm 43 now, so that's not that long ago. And I was medically retired. Medical retirement is very hard. You have a career, you have something you're striving for. We all make plans in our life, long-term plans. And suddenly it's as though the carpet's ripped from underneath you. I got in my car and I travelled to the gym the next day. What was I going to do with myself? I got to the gym and I'll be honest, I cried my eyes out. But then I thought, I've got more to give. I've definitely got more to give. I just can't do that anymore. My dad was my hero. Um, I lost him in 2000. He died of cancer, sadly. But do you know what he taught me? That before we get to I can't, we always look to see how you can adapt or do something differently. Is the National Trust have been incredibly inclusive. They've made me feel very valued and I think that's vitally important. But what I really like is that when I've made suggestions and not just locally but even nationally to head office, those suggestions have been taken on board and that to me is the sign of a forward thinking and inclusive place to work regardless of whether I'm a volunteer or whether I'm employed. And that's what gives me value. That's what makes me feel part of the National Trust and not just somewhere that I rock up to um, on a day that I have a shift. And that's important to me. I do a lot for the Parkinson's community. And so it is important to me to not lose my identity and just become a person with a neurological condition. And that's something that definitely the National Trust has allowed me to do. And I'm being very open and very frank because... There will be other people out there who have similar conditions or restrictions or issues or problems. It may just be a temporary thing. It may be a long-term thing. It may be a forever thing. My main message is talk about it. Tell your line managers. Tell your colleagues. Don't hide it. You can't get help and you can't make the most of yourself and therefore feel more valued if you don't give these people the opportunity, your employers, your you know volunteer managers, head office, if you don't feed that information in, it can't change and you can't get all the support that you might require. But that's enough of that. I promised you I would take you to some iconic sites and to some great places on the Lizard and the Far West. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm taking you today to Kynance Cove. Well, a trip to the Lizard wouldn't be the same without it, would it? Just before you arrive at Lizard Village is a turning on the right-hand side. And that turning is for Kynance Cove, probably one of the most famous places and landmarks of the Lizard Peninsula. But it also gets incredibly busy during July and August in particular. It's high tide, which means that I won't be able to get access to the beach itself because Kynance is quite remarkable in that um, it actually spends more of its time underwater than it does actually with sand um, available to people to sit on. It's an incredible, spectacular thing to see, um, but people need to be aware of that, um, certainly in terms of the tides um, and how quickly you can get cut off there. So you drive through a small road which leads through heathers and fields and speed bumps. Ooh, there we go. Um, 
and you'll eventually arrive in a car park. I've just gone past, in fact, a sign that's a bridleway to Lizard Village. Um, it's around about a five-mile walk um, to walk to Lizard Village um, and then, or from Lizard Village, and then walk into Kynance and then come back round again. And it's a very beautiful walk, equally good for cycling. The Lizard is actually a very good place for cycling in Cornwall um, with an awful lot of flatter areas. It's only as you start to get to the coast um, that it starts to kind of taper off um, and we'll call it tapering off. I don't call it that when I'm trying to cycle up those hills. <laughs> there are parking charges here if you're not a member. Um, however, if you're a member, you can park for free. Oh, I'm not the only person in the car park. I appear to be joined by a bunch of cattle. Interesting. <laughs> so I've got <laughs> very inquisitive cows taking a good old look at my car right now. Morning, boys. Wow, that one looks really grumpy. Sorry, sorry, just, just passing through. Don't mind me. <laughs> That's funny exactly where I want to park. I wish I could show you a photograph. A whacking great bull. <laughs> so there are two routes in when you arrive at Kynance at the car park and you've uh, paid your dues or put your card into the machine. Um, there's a high tide route and there's also a low tide route. Now the high tide route um, is still slightly hilly, um, very very beautiful and obviously doesn't quite hug the coast. Now it, there has to be a high tide route because as I've alluded to before or said before you cannot get to the beach when the tide is in. Whew. <laughs> it's an incredibly still morning. Um, the sea actually looks like a mill pond, it's beautiful. Loads and loads of seabirds. There's a buzzard just gone over me. In fact, there's one actually stationary on a rock just to my right-hand side. Absolutely beautiful. Right, onwards and downwards in my case, as I head along the route, the high water route into Kynance Cove. It's taken me probably around about five five minutes or so so far um, and I've probably got a good another five minutes or so to go just to give you some idea of how far it is from the car park. Right we're at the cattle grid which means we're almost at the cafe. Yes there's a cafe at Kynance Cove and there's also I'm gonna hedge my bets across the across the cattle grid there is a gate. Um, there is a cafe, as I said, um, and toilets as well. Um, very lovely, posh, clean toilets, actually. Um, so that's always a bonus. Wow, gosh, this beautiful stream to my right-hand side is absolutely covered in bright orange mombrisha. It's absolutely stunning. It goes all the way up the valley. And exactly as I stated, as soon as I arrive down by Kynance, there's a big sign that says, don't get cut off by the tide. And that is just so imperative to get across. You won't see it coming. The thing is with Kynance that it comes from both sides. So people don't realize, they, they just keep an eye on one side and don't realize that they need to keep an eye on both sides of the sea. But as I arrive now down on the beach, I have to say I've never actually been here at high tide. Lots of herring gulls sat on the rocks. 
and I'm sure you can hear that beautiful sound of the water just lapping on the rocks in front of me. That could just lull me to sleep, that sound. Stunning. And as I look in front of me, there's a big pile of headland and I know that just round the corner from there um, is Lizard Point, the most southerly point of mainland UK. So the only beach that's left um, are these big rocky boulders to walk over. It's all serpentine, pretty much, um, that I'm walking across. And literally it's stunning beautiful piece of rock that I'm looking at now which is a, a classic example of serpentine has reds and then like a green it almost looks like a stilton that's probably the best way to describe it um, not the red pieces obviously um, but the green pieces certainly and it's incredibly beautiful I'm gonna find myself a little flat rock here and I'm gonna eat my breakfast because it's actually quite early in the morning. I wanted to come down and see what it was like first thing in the morning and it is incredibly beautiful. And not really another person in sight at the moment apart from the odd dog walker. So I'm gonna have my breakfast. So from the main beach now, I've made my way up the other side um, from the car park, which is a very steep and kind of unmade sort of path, but obviously it is still a National Trust coast path. Um, and that's kind of what you'd expect. So I've reached the very top of the hill, um, or the little steep climb that you have from Kynance on the other side from the car park. And just an extensive amount of footpath just opens up before me fairly undulating I can imagine it will probably be steep in places and this will take you all the way through to Mullion and beyond a stunning piece of coast path and the very dramatic cliffs of what is the western side of the lizard um, as I said before the lizard is made of two parts and certainly if you go over to sort of the Helford side it's a lot more green and undulating um, this side you get the jagged cliffs the dramaticness to seeing a cormorant go across. No crowds, but the only sad thing I've seen is some litter, which I will be taking home with me. And I can't implore enough to people to take litter home with them. It causes so much destruction to our wildlife. Well, I found two beer bottles. You know, that's enough to cause a fire after the amount of dryness that we've had. It's just sad in such a beautiful, beautiful environment. So yeah, let's encourage everybody to take their litter home with them. Come and have a good time. But let the wildlife have a good time too. And let's keep these beautiful surroundings as naturally beautiful as they are. As I keep saying, people make places and places make people. I hope you've enjoyed my podcast. I've certainly enjoyed making it. It's enabled me to go back to all the different places that I, I love on the lizard. There are so many more that I could tell you about and so many more in the far west of Cornwall. This really is a very treasured and beautiful part of the world. So come and visit us. I'm nowhere near a tourist spot right now. I'm at the top of some cliffs behind some rocks and I think I found my place. Can you find yours?
Now, in the summer of 2017, a unique discovery was made at Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire, a fragment of a Roman glass bottle. It has taken until now to identify the type of bottle the fragment came from because of its exceptional rarity. We brought in Roman glass expert, the late Professor Jennifer Price, to help, and a worldwide search saw the mystery finally solved after two years. We went to Chedworth to talk to Peter Moore, who discovered the object, and first, trust archaeologist Nancy Grace. We stood in the North Range at Chedworth, which was a Roman villa from the 3rd, 4th century, and there is evidence of an earlier villa from the 2nd century. And it was discovered in the 1860s, and there's a story that the gamekeeper for the estate was out and he was rabbiting and his dog was trying to dig out one of the rabbits and brought out all this material, so all bits of little square stones and bits of pottery. And he knew that his, his master was interested in old stuff and, and things, objects like that, especially Lord Eldon's guardian, uh, James Farrer, who was a, an archeologist uh, or antiquarian, depending on what you want to call them. Um, so he put it in his pocket and then when he saw them, he showed them what he'd found and they got very excited because they recognized it as Roman. And over the years, there's been lots of excavations done on the site, so more excavations, um, trying to answer questions about how the walls relate to one another, especially with finding earlier evidence for the earlier villa underneath, earlier walls, a lot with a lot of burning on them, so we think maybe it burnt down at some point. And the thoughts about who lived here or what it was used for have changed throughout time. So we've got uh, the Nymphaeum or the water shrine up in the top corner um, between the west and the north range that we're stood in. Uh, so a lot of people thought because of its size and the fact it's got two bathhouses that maybe it was a place for pilgrims to come who were visiting the shrine. And it was a bit like a, what we call a mansio, so a bit like a, a travel lodge or something where travellers would come and stay overnight. But because it's such a big villa, because it would have been double storey, and it's got the three sides, the three ranges, and the two bathhouses, and two dining rooms, and two kitchens, and ideas have changed. But the latest from work that we've done, so we've done quite a lot of intensive work on the site since 2010, seems to point to it being the home of someone very influential in the region. So it might even have been the, the regional governor's home uh, or country home. He would have had a townhouse in Sirencester and some of the objects that we've looked at again and new ones that we found are indicating he had a very wide influence and obviously knew the right people and also wanted his place to be the best, the most up-to-date, the one that's most in touch with what was happening at the centre of the empire, the latest fashions, everything. Peter Solway said it's a, probably like a party house, really. So the main west range, which the new cover building's on top of, uh, where you can actually walk along and, and look down and see all the different mosaics. Uh, there's a, a grand dining room with the Four Seasons mosaic. And then you've got the, the bathhouse with plunge pools, with paint at plaster that have got paintings of reeds and that on. So that would be, for visitors, an important event. The range we're stood in, the North Range, is the family's range. So the bathhouse for the family, the main entrance, and then the 
their rooms running down, including a kitchen at the end and a dining room. So these are the, the family's private quarters. And the reception room is where people who visited the villa would end up if they had uh, the right reason to be at the villa. In the South Range, which doesn't get the sun and is quite, quite sort of dark and dingy, and the, the toilet, the latrines are at the top end of that south range so the drain would have drained away down through there it was probably for all the slaves and the um, and the people who looked after the place when he wasn't wasn't in residence so to speak and you'd been doing a lot of excavations over the last few years can you tell us uh, about those and why you were doing those well we started in 2010 as part of project for the new cover building so the two mosaics that had the original cover buildings the victorian buildings over the top we knew there, was, there were more mosaics in between those that were just covered up and every so often they were, we were, parts were excavated to see how, what the condition was and how they were faring. So it was decided that it didn't quite, it didn't quite make sense because the, the pathway, the tarmac path you walked along, actually were, you were inside the villa but it just looked like it was just a pathway had been put in for you to walk around the villa. Also the dining room, you walked up some steps on the outside and looked in through the windows. So you didn't really get a good view of it and the lighting wasn't good. Uh, the mosaics weren't being protected as well as maybe they could be. Uh, so the whole experience wasn't great. So every year we had a programme of excavations and the new building was opened in 2012. And then we did the main corridor whilst people could see us working uh, whilst visiting the new building. The idea then, because it was very successful and everyone really liked the building and it sits very well in the landscape, it was a brave move because we thought it would change the whole atmosphere of the place. So a very brave move to do it, but it sits really well and doesn't detract from the rest of the site. So it was thought we could maybe do that on the North Range as well. So we spent seven, eight years doing work every year, every season. We would uh, get together volunteers um, local people, staff, anyone who knew we were excavating and got in quick could get a day to come and dig the, and excavate at Chedworth and, and dig up the, the mosaics and walk around in bare feet on the mosaics um, and find amazing things. Because there still was a lot to find, even though the Victorians had, had excavated a lot of it. Um, they'd left us tiny little bits that they hadn't excavated. So we, we had pristine, untouched areas to excavate. So we've discovered some mosaics we didn't know were there. The main reception room, we didn't realise there was a lot left there because in the late 50s and early 60s, Sir Ian Richmond had actually um, excavated part of that and he'd put in lines of pink concrete with edging that uh, showed the earlier walls below that he'd found. But in between, we thought he'd excavated those areas in between where he put his concrete to show his walls. Uh, but he hadn't. Speaking to one of the workmen that had actually worked with him who came to see us on site, which was fantastic to actually speak to someone who had, had done that work, um, he said, no, we never touched the middle bits. And we'd found the mosaic in between these bits of walling that he'd put in, these bits of concrete. So it's all this... Archaeology is just, it's detective, you're finding things and, and getting the evidence together and then you have to look at it as a whole and try and sort it out and then tell the story from what it's showing you really. So we're, we're storytellers and we've certainly done a lot of work at Chedworth 
um, finding new bits and getting old people, you know, people's things from before and seeing how they fit with what we've now found where they dug. And then just bringing you up to the, the most recent discovery of the glass fish that, uh, that we've that turned up. Tell us about how that came about. How did, it, how did it get discovered and how did you find out what it was? We found a few, like I was saying, we found a few really interesting objects that aren't that usual to find in Roman Britain that help us look at what the person here, what status he had, what influences he had, who it might be. We found Palestinian amphora, so the far uh, reaches of the eastern Mediterranean. We found marble that comes from the eastern Mediterranean quarries that uh, the emperor had first call on. So he's managed to get hold of some second hand or bits of marble and, and got them over here. So that that was coming out of looking at the old um, collection, but also what we found in our excavations. We found a piece of marble and we found this um, Palestinian amphora. But then two years ago, we found in the North Range this piece of glass. It's quite a small piece, but it has an amazing um, bluey green colour and on it are applied little loops of yellow and white glass on the top. My name's Peter Moore. Uh, I'm an archaeologist and I was one of the core members of the team that excavated here uh, from 2016 onwards. And you were digging exactly where you're standing? Yes, exactly right here, yes. Um, that was uh, 2017 I was digging here, but uh, the first year I was up by the Nymphaeum, by the uh, water spring, uh, and 2018 that was a bit more of a uh, mosaic-y based excavation. And can you tell us about the experience of finding the fish? Well obviously we weren't expecting anything quite like that. Digging here was supposed to be just a, a normality. This room in particular was not a focus for the uh, 2017 excavation at all and initially we were expecting these to be wrapped up in two or three days. But atypically of archaeological investigations, this one ended up being to the end. In the trench behind me, which was uh, dug in two days and finished in two days, we came across nothing but bare ground within a couple of inches below ground. And this one ended up going to about six foot below uh, current ground level, and even then we weren't finished with the actual hole. Digging it was a, a challenge, the soil around here isn't kind, so it required a lot of hard graft and uh, a lot of effort in order to actually get to the meaningful archaeology, but in the end it was all worth it. So did you discover anything else in this trench? Uh, there was a lot of the usual pottery, um, some sort of very rudimentary pieces of glass as well, but quite generic. But aside from that, it was quite bland, actually. There was a, there was a massive foundation wall, which was what we were looking to follow down. But aside from the pottery and a couple of bits of glass, there was nothing special coming out of here at all. Well, it was mid-dig and it was about three foot down and I'd only been finding this pottery, so I was getting a little, little fed up, admittedly. And at the time, the, the soil was very clay, so I was sort of making my heart, working quite hard to work my way through it. And suddenly my trowel just glanced this bit of glass that didn't sound quite right. And I just brushed the surface with my finger and suddenly saw this pattern emerge. And at that point, it was, I knew it was something very special indeed. Tiny piece, oval in shape, really unusual. No idea, it's no parallels. We'd not really, no one could think of anything similar. 
and glass that had a similar pattern to it was actually made in a different way. So there's quite a lot of similar Roman glass and uh, Eastern Mediterranean glass that has this loop, almost like a Mr. Kipling's cake sort of pattern, these loop patterns. But those are made um, in what they call cone glass. So you form it round a mould and each different colour is added into the body of the glass. So when you look at it from the inside out, you see the pattern. And when you look at it from outside in, you see the pattern. Whereas the piece we had, when you looked from the outside in, you could see the pattern. But when you look from inside out, it was just the base colour, this lovely bluey green colour. So it had been applied on top rather than being in the body of the glass. So very different. Not everyone was sending information saying, oh, I think it's this, I think it might be this glass. But it wasn't. So luckily, uh, I was going to a, a conference of Roman Finds Research Group and the main lady to uh, look at this glass and give us some more information, uh, Jennifer Price, was going. So I took the glass along to show her uh, and she got very excited as soon as she saw it. She said, oh, this is something unusual. I think, I think it might be from even over as far as Iran. She'd done, had a lot of experience with working on glass from the east. Eastern Mediterranean and that sort of area and she already had things ticking in her brain. She said, right, I've got to take this away and do more work because I've not seen anything like it. This is a special, special piece of glass. Well, not quite two years later, she, um, she found a comparable piece so in uh, the Corning Museum in New York. And it's a fish, so it's shaped like a fish on its side and our bit fits just where at the end where the tail comes flares out from the body to the tail so it just comes from that little bit fits perfectly and it's the same kind of glass as well with this applied decoration and there's one a little similar came from a burial uh, over in the Crimea uh, not quite the same shape but a similar technique uh, so she's concluded with looking at the corning glass which doesn't have a provenance so that's frustrating, um, but with her knowledge and her uh, all the research she'd done and all the other people in the glass, Roman glass world across the whole world had all seen it and all pondered on it, they decided that somewhere around the Black Sea is where it was probably made. So again, that far-reaching place that he's managed to get this glass from. It was very deeply buried, so it could even either be a piece that's like an antique that he had, or where it is in the phasing, it could even be from the earlier villa, from the second century villa. So it's a special little piece that caused great excitement. Well, the glass is uh, in the museum on site at the moment, so you can see it. We've had an illustrator actually do a, a painting of what it might have looked like. And hopefully we're going to get some specialist glassmakers actually make one or try and make one. Um, so we'll actually see the technique, see how it works and see the finished things so that we can then compare. Because it's only a tiny little bit. So imagining the whole thing is quite, can be quite difficult. And that's the thing with archaeology. We're finding little bits and pieces. So you have to imagine the thing when it was whole. So that'll, that'll be exciting if they, they have a go at that. Well, that's all for this edition of the Inspire podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time for more inspiring stories from the Southwest. 
and don't forget to let us know what you think. I am the Emperor Ben Vizard, and I hope I'll catch you again next time, unless I'm deposed in the meantime. Quia Nunc Valley. Producers would like to assure listeners that no dormice were harmed in the making of this podcast.